Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. It's hard to believe that we are already in one of the preparation Sundays before the season of Lent, which we call in the Eastern churches the season of the great fast, the flowering of repentance, the bright sadness. It is our custom, and rightly so, wisely so actually, to move into a very intense period in the liturgical calendar by means of a gradual buildup. And we do that for Lent by the different Sundays that precede Lent. They all have a different theme according to the gospel, a theme that's relevant to the season we're going to get into, the season of repentance. So today is the Sunday of the prodigal son in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. And of course, most of you are familiar with that story, if you're anyway familiar with the gospels. It's one of the great stories. I always call that the you too could be a great preacher story <laughs> of the gospel because it's such a dynamic and colorful, moving, dramatic story. In addition to that, this particular week, we celebrate the Feast of St. Gregory the Theologian and also St. John Chrysostom, the translation of his relics. We celebrated another great saint in the Eastern Church at the very beginning of the month, and that was St. Basil the Great. Now, notice I pointed out three saints. The reason for that is because we then have a feast day on Friday, January 29th. Normally it's on the 30th, but that's an all-soul Saturday. Normally that 30th, which this year will be the 29th of January, we celebrate all three of those bishops together. They each had their own feast day, but now they're celebrated together. And the reason for that is because, as I call it, the good old days of the church, when they had fights about faith, about which saint was the greatest, that actually happened. And that inspired then the emperor of the Byzantine Empire to keep peace in his country by then declaring a feast day where all three, John Chrysostom, Gregory the Theologian, and Basil the Great, all three would be celebrated together because there were arguments about which one was the greatest. So they had their individual feast, 
But to keep the peace, they put them all together at the same time on one particular day, and that is usually January 30th. However, it's moved now this year to Friday the 29th because the 30th this year is one of the All Souls Saturdays, which again is another part of the Lenten preparation where we pray for the deceased members of our families by name. We actually name them off by name. When someone is deceased, especially if they die from a parish, they belong to a parish in the Eastern churches, we put their names in a book. And their names are read off out loud, all every one of them, on several Saturdays during Lent. They're called the All Souls Saturdays. So, as always, we have an exciting week coming up in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. But before we get any further with other events, I just want to say thank you and hello to a number of you out there listening. First of all, any of our parishioners from my parish of Annunciation, Byzantine Catholic in Homer Glen, Illinois, I want to say hello to you. Of course, you heard from me earlier today at church. Now you're tuning in again <laughs> to your program, our program, Light of the East. Also want to say hello to Tom and Kathleen Masters. Thank you for your kindness, your kind letters and contact with us. Also, E.C. Kirkham out in Salt Lake City. Our good friend Gene Bray out in Tahua, Washington. Ted and Pamela Morosky, locally here in Homer Glen area. Also, our good friend, longtime friend here of us at Light of the East, William Radovich from Monroe Center, Illinois. Hello, William. Again, thank you for your kindness. And thank you to all of you who have sent letters to us recently, kind letters, and above all, thank you for listening. Speaking of letters, I received a letter from a listener regarding a previous program I had on iconography. We're going to get to his letter. His name is John. He's out of Seattle, Washington. John wrote a letter, had some thoughts and comments about our program on iconography. So we're going to get to his letter a little bit later in the program. But we need to update all of you on certain things happening in the eastern lung of the church. That is a name that was coined by St. John Paul II. He said that the church breathes with both lungs, east and west. And of course, this program represents largely the eastern lung of the church, although we do touch on at the same time the riches of the western lung of the church, most specifically the Latin rite. It's just like the human race, like man and woman. You can't really talk about a man unless you do so in relation to a woman, and vice versa. It's the same thing in the church. If I talk about the Eastern churches, I can't just talk about them alone. I have to talk about them also at times in relation to our brothers and sisters in the other lung of the church, the Latin Rite or the Roman Catholic Church, and vice versa. But primarily we talk on this program, Light of the East, about the riches of the Eastern church. And we're going to update you now on some news around the Eastern church world. And this news comes from a wonderful report that is put out by Father Ronald Roberson, who is the Secretariat for Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs out of Washington, D.C. And Father Roberson puts out a wonderful newsletter that updates the world on things happening around the whole world in the Eastern churches. It's a very thorough, very thorough presentation. Now, there's a significant event that he did update us on, an event that we hope will happen. It's the Pan-Orthodox Council. This is where the Eastern Orthodox churches are planning to come together in a grand council to discuss issues. And councils are very, very important in the Eastern churches. We rely very, very much on the decisions and statements of councils. For those of you in the Latin Rite Church, you're probably familiar with the Second Vatican Council, and you know that many things came out of that. Many things came about as a result of that, but not because of the Second Vatican Council. Certain things that maybe are very questionable have been very problematic, but that really has nothing to do with the council itself. If we really look at a council, a council is directed by the Holy Spirit. 
So what comes out of a council, official statements and documents, is good for the church. Sometimes those things can be misinterpreted or carried out in ways that are maybe extreme or overzealous or not quite accurate. But the church has a way of ironing out over time. The church moves in terms of slow ends of time, which is a little unusual for us. We like things very brief and quick, but things just don't move that way in the church. So councils are important east and west, but in particular the eastern churches. Now, according to Father Robertson's report, he said that the venue for conducting the Pan-Orthodox Council, which is scheduled to convene in Istanbul in 2016, may be changed because of the growth of tensions in relations between Russia and Turkey. This is the thought of the Secretary for Inter-Orthodox Relations of the Department of External Church Relations of the Moscow Patriarchate. His name is Archpriest Igor Yakimchuk. The conduct of the Pan-Orthodox Council, whose preparations began more than 50 years ago, had been earlier preliminarily set for 2016 in Istanbul. That, of course, is Turkey, and that used to be called Constantinople, the great center of the Byzantine Church. But that decision was made at a meeting of the heads and representatives of all the local Orthodox churches. Now we can only discuss hypothetically about how political circumstances of recent days may impact the event. We do not know when it will be held. If there were a worsening of circumstances, then it would be quite possible that the council will be held in a different place. It is difficult to talk about this now, Yakimchuk told RAA Novosti. Yakimchuk said, he emphasized that the final decision about the date and venue of conducting the council must be made unanimously by the primates of all Orthodox churches. The next session of the Commission on Preparation of the Council will be held in Greece, and there, and where the next measure after all that will be conducted, is difficult to say. This involves, among other things, an expected preliminary conference of primates. If it is agreed to mean Istanbul, then the conference will be there. As far as I understand, travel by our citizens to Turkey is not prohibited, the Archbishop reported. In his turn, the chairman of the Union of Orthodox Citizens, Valentin Lebedev, says that it would be better to conduct the Pan-Orthodox Council in Russia. The latest actions by Turkey cast doubt on holding the Pan-Orthodox Council in Istanbul in the upcoming year. To achieve effectiveness of its work, it is necessary to guarantee conditions of maximum security. In this context, Moscow represents the best shot, he thinks. All right, so what's happening here is significant. First of all, what's proposed to happen here is very significant. Getting the Orthodox churches together is a very significant issue because it is a problem that they do have. They're not always united on things, although they try to be. And they need to come together. They know they need to come together. The world would like to see them come together. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Catholic Churches, the Pope would like to see them come together. Because when they come together, they can discuss issues and be unanimous, stronger, and therefore assist their brothers in the West in facing the two things that are crushing us like a vice in our day and age. Two things that neither the East or West can fight on their own. Those two things are, of course, Islamic extremism and also moral relativism. It's like two sides of a vice that are crushing civilization and especially Christianity. So we look forward to the day when the Orthodox will come together in a council, and we're very excited about the outcome of that council, but first it has to happen. Now, the impediment there, you may recall, was an event that happened recently where the country of Turkey shot down a Russian plane. This is what they're referring to as the source of tensions that are happening, so they may have to relocate this council. 
But let's all pray that they do come together. They settle this somehow and they do come together because the Orthodox churches need to come together. They know that. They admit that. And we would like to see them come together. We need them to come together. The world needs them to come together. So that's what's happening in that area of the Eastern Christian world. But there's other things happening as well, other hotspots such as the Ukraine. And we're going to talk about that when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. As a married couple, how would you like to give each other the gift of love itself? then this is for you. Hello, I'm Father Thomas J. Loya, and I am inviting husbands and wives to join me and the team of the Tabor Life Institute at St. Nicholas Parish in Munster, Indiana on Saturday, February 27th, and at St. Basil's Parish in Sterling Heights, Michigan on Saturday, April 30th for Embracing the Mystery, a day of recollection for married couples. Our presentation weds together the sacramental liturgical worldview of Byzantine spirituality and St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body to rediscover the why of marriage so as to know the how of a happy sacramental marriage. We will also integrate what goes on in church with what should go on in our homes. For information and to register, visit TaborLife.org. That's TaborLife.org. Or call 708-645-0762. 708-645-0762. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you. Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host, and we were talking before the break about some news items happening around the eastern world, the eastern lung of the church. Another item is, of course, another hot spot, and that is in the Middle East. And on our program, we are very sympathetic and try to get the message out of the plight of Christians in the Middle East, those who are terribly persecuted, especially areas of Syria and Iraq. We're very good friends with the Iraqi Christian Relief Council, which we highly recommend all of you to become connected with. They're a wonderful group that helps these poor people that are alienated from their own homes and living in such 
such pain and misery? Well, going back to Father Roberson's report that we're referring to today, Father Roberson says that the Catholic patriarchs of the Middle East encouraged their troubled people to find inner peace, and this was at Christmas time, and urged the world to remember them. Of course, that's exactly what we're doing right now here in Light of the East. In Iraq, we will celebrate the birth of Christ, who comes into our hearts and in silence and tears, said Chaldean Catholic patriarch Louis Sacco of Baghdad. However, he said, we remain sustained by an inner peace that perpetuates the joy of faith and hope that we will, despite the trials, work toward a fairer country and a better future. This year, Iraqi Christians will celebrate Christmas in deplorable conditions, the deteriorating situation at all levels of our country, and what they experience as Christians, victims of segregation and exclusion. The Islamic State still occupies Mosul and the cities of the Nineveh Plain, the Patriarch said. No one except those who have had planned this religious purification could have imagined such a catastrophe. Patriarch Sacco said, noting that since the summer of 2014, many Christians have been forced to live in camps in which their needs are being provided for only by the church or civil society. Homes of Christians in Baghdad are still at risk of being seized by extremist Muslim militias. And he said, adding that images of Mary were recently posted throughout the city with a message inviting Christian women to imitate the Blessed Virgin and to veil themselves. Patriarch Sacco said Christians are victims of discrimination. It is as if the fundamental rights and freedoms did not pertain to us, he said. All this deprives us of the joy of the holiday. On this occasion, Christmas, we want to repeat quite frankly, we do not give in to injustice. On the contrary, we will remain committed to our land, our patriotism, and we will continue to live our love for our fellow citizens simply because they are our brothers, Patriarch Sacco said. We want peace for Iraq. Now, Syriac Catholic Patriarch Ignace Joseph III Yunan, based in Beirut, said that for Christmas, our present world urgently needs any glimmer of hope for people who are persecuted, displaced, and uprooted coercively from the land of their fathers and grandfathers. We are the shepherds of this persecuted people. We stand today in front of a historic crossroad in the journey of our people. Displaced people forced to migrate become like Jesus, homeless, he added. So just a little bit of an update that things are still very, very difficult, unimaginably difficult in the areas where Christianity began, in those great biblical areas. I mentioned Nineveh here. Nineveh is a biblical spot. Remember, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to the prophet Jonah. Well, if you remember, these areas there are not just news items where there's war and bombing. These are areas of the Bible. This is our spiritual heritage. We're connected with these people, regardless of what nationality we are. We are connected with them through our faith. And also just because they're our brothers and sisters as human beings, and certainly our brothers and sisters in Christ. So please remember them in prayer. Don't forget them. And contact the Iraqi Christian Relief Council, iraqichristianrelief.org. It's iraqichristianrelief.org. And try to help them out. That particular organization, the Iraqi Christian Relief Council, gives aid directly, no bureaucracy, no red tape, no big administration. It gives aid directly to these poor suffering Christians. That's why we're aligned with them here at Light of the East. That's iraqichristianrelief.org. Well, I mentioned that I got a letter from a listener named John, John Cox, in fact, from Seattle. And he's commenting on iconography, especially in regard to a program we had here at Light of the East, in which we said some things about iconography. And he wanted to bring up some of these things and specify and talk about some of the terminology. For instance, he said that I mentioned that when we create icons, that it's painting versus writing. 
Now, the reason you brought that up is because you hear oftentimes nowadays people say that icons are not something you paint, they're something you write. Now, why do they say that? That's being said because icons are essentially our faith in the scriptures in the form of line and color. Just as you can pick up a Bible, a Bible is made of what? How does the Word of God transmitted through that particular instrument? It's transmitted through paper and characters in ink that are printed on a page, right? That's the vehicle. It's the Word of God, but it has to come through a vehicle. So just as the Bible was written, and we write the Bible today in a sense that we print it, so too many believe and refer to icons as something written, even though they're images, they're like pictures, you know, images of people and so on, scenery, you know, art, visual art. And I come from the perspective that I suppose you can say that we write icons, but I tend to lean also towards what the great Father Robert Taft, one of the world's greatest Byzantine liturgists, says. He really poo-poo's this idea of writing the icons, because I guess he takes a much more exacting interpretation of the word when it comes to graphis or graphic. He says that refers to picture image, not so much writing. I tend to agree with that, although I can accept the idea that we say icons are written. I prefer, maybe it's the art background in me. <laughs> art was my field before I was a priest. Now, of course, I do both. <laughs> comes in handy in the church. But from my art perspective, and also from my iconographic and priestly perspective, I still prefer or lean towards the word painting or art rather than writing. Another point that John brought up for us was the fact that I mentioned that to be an iconographer, one should have a background in art, preferably a professional background in art or professional training in art. And he was saying this, he says, uh, as you know, iconography is more of a spiritual thing rather than an artistic endeavor. He said that we don't necessarily have to have artistic training and we can still create beautiful icons. And that really the measure of the icon is the measure of the spirituality that is communicated through it and also through the person painting it. Well, there's a very good point. My response to that would be this. I would recommend that in thinking about this, the art and the spirituality, do we need to be real artists to do icons? I would recommend being very Eastern about this, being very Byzantine. In other words, be very integrated, be very both and in our perception of this question. It's not the artist versus the icon. The art is a gift, is a talent, is an ability versus the spirituality. It is, like everything else in the Eastern churches and like really life itself, it's more of a both and. The artist, just like the paint, the board, the line, the color, it becomes the vehicle through which the revelation, the truth, the scripture is revealed. It needs a worthy vehicle. For example, if we said that Icons communicate like the Bible does. A book that we call the Bible communicates revelation, communicates God's word. Well, a Bible would have to be done well, right? Not any Bible will do. If the print was not clear, if it was messy, if it was not in very good order, if the book binding wasn't strong, if the vehicle itself was not good, that would be problematic. And in fact, especially in the Eastern churches, we take Bibles, we take the gospel books and we adorn them. We put gold around them and precious jewels even, and we incense them and elevate them and kiss them, the actual book itself, because we want it to be 
a very worthy vehicle, the most beautiful and finest vehicle for that beautiful and fine word of God. Well, it's very similar in art, in iconography. I believe that the icon, yes, it does communicate the spirituality, but the spirituality is in part communicated by virtue of the art and the artist. Similar thing happens with music. Think about music in the church. Think about if you have a cantor or a choir. Well, if they couldn't sing, you wouldn't just say, well, their heart's in the right place, or it's the spiritual thing that matters. You wouldn't separate those two out. The two are wedded together. You take the person's God-given ability as a musician or as an artist, and God intends that gift to be used for his glory. So he wants the art or the music to be truly beautiful because God is true, good, and beautiful. So beauty itself, in other words, if you're a competent artist or musician, especially in the church, the beauty itself is in itself a spiritual reality. It's already communicating God just by the quality of its beauty. But yes, we wed it together. We don't separate them out with the spirituality of the individual artist and how they paint the icon. If you stand before outstanding icons, ones that are very, very well known, the one that comes to my mind that I stood before a couple of times, I had the privilege to, is the icons of the Koro Museum, also called Kariyajami, which is in Istanbul. If you come before those icons, it's like standing before the, I call it the Eastern version of the Sistine Chapel. You are completely awed by their beauty. Especially as an artist, I'm awed by the outstanding artistry, which also at the same time communicates the spirituality. So it's always about the both and, whether it's in art or anywhere in the Eastern churches or in life itself. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Willcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!